0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you, church. Looking forward to getting back into Jude with you this morning. Jude is the next to last book of the New Testament, so find Revelation, go left, and you're there. We'll be in verses 11 through 13 this morning, but before we begin our exposition, I would like to pray together, if we could. Let's pray. Father, we confess ourselves empty before you. Unless you fill us with your word, unless you illuminate it by the power of your spirit, we will know nothing of the power of your word. We'll know nothing of the changing nature of your word. We'll know nothing of the gravity of what is spoken here. We'll make the wrong application will be imbalanced, unclear, and we'll walk out of here no better than we were when we walked in. But with your spirit, Lord, you give us light. You give our minds understanding. You convict and change our hearts. You sanctify us to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, please send your spirit now into the hearts of the hearers. For those who are saved, draw them closer to you. For those who are lost, open their eyes for the first time. For those who may be wondering about false prophets and their usefulness or their warnings or any of the things contained here, Lord, please, for those who are wavering, be merciful to them, strengthen them, pull them away from those sources, those people, those things, and help them to to hear your word clearly and for your preacher lord may i represent your word faithfully now preach as a dying man to dying men as if i would never preach again i am in great need of your spirit lord i am weak and in much trembling help me now in christ's name amen well we're in jude verses 11 through 13 particularly this morning And Jude's central purpose for writing to the church was to urge the Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in the last two messages, we began to see these three sets of threes that Jude uh, uses to teach us, to help us understand the enemies of the church. Apostates, false teachers, all synonyms. There were three notorious examples, Old Testament examples of God's judgment, which prefigured the judgment of the apostates. We saw the example of Israel, of angels, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verses eight through 10, we saw three charges or three tests of these enemies of the church. So if you wanna know how to identify an apostate, here is the test. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme those who are Christ's people, especially his shepherds. Now, each of these three sets is interconnected, and they provide infamous examples well understood by the readers at the time. So having laid out these two sets of threes, Jude gives the church an unmistakable comparison with the sins of three notoriously wicked men. Three notoriously wicked men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And you can see that in verse 11. So again, he's helping us here to identify real enemies. Now, with these three notorious men, Jude, at the end of the passage, and we'll, we'll speak briefly on this and save it for a, a later message, he adds five really kind of word pictures for us. He takes us back to children's church and gives us those, those pictures for our minds to see to drive home the point of who these false teachers really are. So we'll handle our text in three points. First, if you have your outline, you'll see one pithy pronouncement in verse 11, woe to them. Second, you will see three notorious comparisons, as we mentioned before, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And then finally, we will see five word pictures or natural phenomena that help us understand false teachers. So to our first point, one pithy pronouncement. This is verse 11a. Woe to them, we'll read the whole section here. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs, such your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So notice the first point here, one pithy pronouncement. Jew does not mince words with these men, these apostates. Following up on what he said before is this pronouncement of woe. It's an oracle. It's an oracle of woe. You can see that in verse 11. And this is a prophetic judgment about these men. Their end is nothing but woe. These men are what they are, and because of it, their end is nothing but destruction. Now, woe is a very instructive way of communicating divine anger and displeasure. And Brandon did a, a fabulous job last time in explaining this word, so I'm just going to highlight some things here. It's a form of an oracle from God. Now, an oracle is a divine speech, and oracles were given to men to answer essential questions or reveal future events. So for you language nerds out there, woe is an onomatopoeia. Say that three times fast. Who remembers what an onomatopoeia is? I'm going to tell you. We have a few language nerds here. Okay. An onomatopoeia is a word that resembles or imitates the sound that it describes. The entire legacy of Adam West and Batman is built upon a string of relentless onomatopoeias. Zip. Bang buzz, thwack. Woe is the expression of a sharp outburst of feeling, sometimes of anger, sometimes of grief, sometimes of alarm, but it's always spoken with judgment in view. The prophets of old were full of oracles of woe against the sins of the people. Now, most interesting here to me is most of the New Testament pronouncements of woe are found in the Gospels, and they're spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 75% of all mentions in the New Testament find their place in the lips, on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ oracles of woe. Outside of this, and more familiar instances, are woes found in the book of Revelation where nothing short of cataclysmic judgment is rolled out upon the inhabitants of earth. So Jude here, in using this word, he minces no words with these men. In fact, woe isn't even a word. It's more of a deep groaning beyond words. Why is the Greek. It's it's an expression from the belly. You can't even formulate the pain felt by this word. In this word, woe, I think we need to note three important ideas. In woe, there is an expression of anger and sorrow. False teachers are perverting the truth, and by it the people of God are stained, and souls are put in jeopardy. So crafty are these men that undiscerning and vulnerable Christians see them not in the, in the proper light that they should see them. They're not able to call a spade a spade. Jude tells us later in verse 22, if you look there really quickly, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. That word doubt there means to waver, to waver. It describes someone who's undecided or undiscerning in a dispute. Some looking on a man like Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick or T.D. Jakes or Joel Osteen, there I go name-dropping again, genuinely cannot see the glaring and damnable things they believe. Some waver. And Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. We have an attitude of mercy toward brothers and sisters who are not spiritually mature enough to know the difference. Hebrews 5.14. But we also have mercy on them because these men are just plain crafty. They're just plain crafty. Peter says elsewhere, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Pardon me. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They pray on the weakest of the weak by crafty speech. Peter says they snatch away those on the fringes, barely escaping. Woe to these crafty men, Jude says. Beloved, I want to ask you this. How could we not have moral outrage at such a thing? How is there not in us a deep groaning, too deep for words, really? How is there not in our belly a hot and sorrowful woe to these men? In woe, there's an expression of anger and sorrow all at the same time. Secondly, in woe, there is a public condemnation. These men deserve punishment. Their gross sin requires it. Now, We may have private judgments about all sorts of things within the kingdom, within ourselves, within the body of Christ. Things about which good men differ. Good men can differ on things. And we would do well to keep most of those things off the internet. But there's an attitude we must make publicly known publicly known for all to see and hear because it threatens the soul of every man caught in its trap. It's the public condemnation of false teachers, hence why I'm standing here right now. These sorts of things are not for the private judgments of men, where good men can differ. They are not matters of silence or covering in love. You can reference 1 Peter 4.8 and 1 Corinthians 13, 8. They are matters of public condemnation. In woe, in this woe from Jude, we see the public condemnation of false teachers. Thirdly, in woe, there is a sure reminder of future punishment. Now, upon the authority of the word of God, we can say, you can say, I can say, that only woe, awaits the man who lives in this manner. Only woe awaits him. Jude reminds the false teachers of this. False teachers have a sure end, and that end is too great for words. It's an event so great it's incommunicable, a judgment so profound that words fail to describe the terror. It can only be boiled down to a groaning word, woe. Now, With all that considered, this tells us something about the temperature of Jude's mindset and demeanor toward false teachers. His anger here, his expression of woe, was a righteous anger because his thinking was rightly informed. He was a man who was full of both light and heat. And that is a rare, rare combination in the defense of the truth. Light and heat. His heart was expressive of the holy prophets of old. And more importantly, it was expressive of how Jesus dealt with false teachers. He summarily judges them on the matter. Woe to them. Woe to them. Now, I want to spend some time here observing this really just hard line in the sand that Jude draws for us. Because as we contend for the truth, we run the risk of being drunk fighters, falling off the donkey on one side or the other. Okay? So I want to spend a few minutes here considering some observations about Jude's attitude as he pronounces woe upon false teachers. So I want you to see observation number one. Seducers and seduced are dealt with in a very different way in Scripture. Seducers and seduced and the seduced are dealt with in very different ways in Scripture. Now, it's one thing to rejoice over the private uh, enemy with whom we, we have a personal connection. Proverbs 24, 17 warns us against rejoicing over our enemies in this way. It says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Now, this is the attitude of unregenerate men. Unregenerate men rejoice when their enemies fall. When private enemies fall, unregenerate men take joy in that. But this is an attitude that should not be imitated by the people of God. Now, as we briefly mentioned, and we'll see more fully later, Jude says private enemies are to receive mercy because they waver. Mercy because they waver. We deal gently with the ignorant and wavered, Hebrews 5.2. We are not to be quarrelsome, as we read in Uh, as Robin read just a minute ago, we're not to be quarrelsome but kind to those who are seduced, teaching them, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness, 2 Timothy 2.24. However, however, and here's the line in the sand, however, public enemies of the truth, such as false teachers, are a different story. They're a different story. The scripture takes a very different position regarding these men, and it is very instructive for us as we battle for the truth. We're not only to have moral outrage and public condemnation and remind them of their sure end, but here's the challenge. Scripture presents that we ought to have a deep sense of joy when these men are silenced, a deep sense of joy when their mouths are shut. Because when their deception is put to an end, God's church is at peace. Consider this. It was Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote a song for the congregation to sing at the triumph of God over the public enemy, Pharaoh. I will sing to the Lord, he writes in Exodus 15.1. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In Colossians 2.15, Paul writes that God in Christ put the public enemies of truth to an open shame. The crucifixion was a public shaming of false doctrine. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. You do not find in the Lord's ministry the shaming of private sinners. You don't see that, the public shaming of private sinners. You don't see that in the Lord. But you find in him an open shaming of public enemies of the gospel. Notice the woes of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, which I look forward to hearing more of. Colossians 2:15 says he put them to open shame. Lastly, Revelation 18:20. As history is wrapped up, as Babylon falls, as the antichrist is brought into judgment, public enemy number 1. Revelation 18:20 says, "Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets." For God has given judgment for you against her. Can we sing with Handel? Hallelujah. Better yet, do we even recognize what we've been singing all along? It's this very thing. Hallelujah. God reigns and has put his enemies under judgment and has given the church relief. Hallelujah. The next time you sing that, consider those things. James gives us clues also. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. A passage that makes me tremble. For you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. James 3.1. That greater strictness is not only the content of a man's message, but the forum in which he does it. Public figures... Bear public judgment. It's a biblical principle I think we ought to live by. Public sin, public rebuke. Private sin, private rebuke. Don't mix the two. We lose that balance very quickly many times, and especially with the ease of the Internet. Remember that. Public sin, public rebuke. Private sin, private rebuke. But we can see even upon kind of a cursory examination that seducers and seduced are dealt with in a very different way in Scripture. And we have to hold those things in balance. Second observation. If we do not rightly label our enemies, and Jude is at pains to do this, if we do not rightly label our enemies, we will wrongly label our friends. If we don't rightly label our enemies, we will wrongly label our friends. Now, the more significant portion of Jude's letter contains the enemy's identity, though that's not his main purpose. However, in laboring the point of identity, Jude provides deep instruction for us in battling for the truth. He provides for us a way to distinguish between who is a true enemy and who is not. And this is part of the way he's teaching us to contend for the truth, though it's not stated explicitly. Now, we've already seen in Jude, in verse 3, if you look there, a man who was eager to write to you about our common salvation. He was eager to highlight the things in common among the saints. And I wonder if we have the same attitude. When needed, Jude was a man of war. This letter's proof. He didn't fail to rise to the occasion, but knowing what to contend for and when to do it makes him the most useful in the battle. And we would do well to deeply consider Jude's attitude toward the church. If we don't rightly label our enemies, we will likely overreact, wound true friends, and shatter peace. Therefore, Jude is at pains, at pains to label the enemy. Why? To avoid the collateral damage of killing our friends. And Christians do that all the time. And we shouldn't, beloved. We would do well to consider the Lord's words to John concerning the man who was casting out demons in Christ's name but was not following the party of John. Do not stop him, the Lord says. For the one who is not against you is for you. Every kingdom, Jesus says in Matthew 12, that is divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Maybe just a a few moments here of self-reflection. Asking ourselves questions about what's just been said will be helpful for us. Maybe you have somebody in mind. You've warred with. Ask yourself concerning that other person with whom you were engaged in controversy. Is this man or woman intentionally hindering the kingdom of God and its advance? Can they be lumped in with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the apostate false teachers? Are they in the kingdom or are they out? This is a more profound consideration than we realize. Is this person a believer? Are they a kindred spirit with you in the faith of the gospel? Then you owe them the con- commendation of prayer. You owe them the commendation of prayer to the Lord and their growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Have you lifted their soul to the Lord? Or are they just an argument to be destroyed? Are they just an argument to be destroyed? Have you studied how to build them up in Christ or simply how to correct them? Let's suppose for a moment in your argument they're wrong, blatantly wrong. If they are wrong, do you deal with them the way the Lord has dealt with you? You've been wrong. You've had many things in your mind that are error and sin. Have you forgotten how the Lord has dealt with you in your slowness to believe? The Lord bears of you likewise. Do you anticipate when you see them in heaven, there will be a weight of glory upon that man or woman that will dissolve all disagreement and bitterness and with whom you will be overjoyed at the sight of Christ? The words of John Newton are fitting here. Quote, Whatever it be, that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good, to treat those with contempt with whom we do not uh, ascribe our doctrines or follow our party is a proof and fruit of a self-righteous spirit. Self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well as upon works. And if a man has the heart of a Pharisee while his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the riches of free grace. Do you see what Newton is saying here? You can have all the right doctrine in your head and have the heart of a Pharisee. You can make doctrine a self-righteous matter. Is he or she an unbeliever? Is your opponent an unbeliever? Poorly deceived by false teachers described in Jude's letter. How are you not deeply humbled to love and patience as you consider this? It is grace alone that has made you differ from that man. It's grace alone that has made you differ. If God did not choose you You might be where that man is, and he might be where you are. You were once blind, and by grace, God made you free. This man has no power to change himself. He cannot open his own eyes, he cannot change his own heart. How can he be an object of your frustration and scorn? You once hated God. You were once his enemy. How can you hate a man with whom you were a kindred spirit just a short time ago? We boast an amazing grace, beloved. But is it really? Is it really where the rubber meets the road in our relationships with one another? And even with the ungodly? I don't want us to miss the point. If we do not rightly label our enemies, we will wrongly label our friends. We will wrongly label our friends. Third observation. And I told you I wanted to spend some time here because we're tying a lot of things together in Jude's letter. He's teaching us how to be Christian in battle. Number three. Balance, humility, and love will conquer your enemy and yourself. Balance, humility, and love will conquer your enemy and yourself. Maybe in controversy, it's not ultimately whether you conquer the other person, but whether you conquer yourself. Have you considered the words of Proverbs 25.8? Do not go hastily, out hastily, to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the confidential discussion of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you, and the evil report about you will not pass away. You have to think about this, beloved. It is risky to take your fight public. It is risky to take your fight public. Are you sure you want to do that? Some of us do it thoughtlessly. Hop on Twitter, blast them. Agree with XYZ guy, blast them. If you're wrong, you are only going to humiliate yourself and everyone will know you cannot keep a secret and it will not be forgotten. You may clear up the matter but you're going to ruin a friendship. You're going to ruin a friendship. Newton, again, is very, very helpful here. And I take a lot of what I'm saying here from John Newton. If you would please get on Google and type in On Controversy by John Newton, and read that. Please keep that by your bedside. Read over it time and time again. It's been such a salve to a man who can be argumentative. Okay? Newton comments on what happens to imbalanced people in theological controversy. Quote, Either we grow in a sense of our own importance or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit, or we insensibly withdraw our attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life and faith, things that you would say, things that are common among us, the common salvation, and we end up spending all our time and strength upon matters which are at most of secondary value. At most of secondary value. Now pause here. Pause. This is, again, self-reflection. Think about this. Are you more important in your own eyes than you really are? I have to be heard. My theology is correct, and I must let the Internet know and especially my opponent. Has your knowledge of the truth you so hotly want to defend, has it made you grow more bitter and contentious? You know that's not the nature of truth, right? No matter what you learn about God, no matter what your opponent may believe, whatever you're learning, if it is not making your heart softer and more holy, And more resolved, not bitter and contentious, you're not learning the truth the right way. Has it made you more like Christ? That's what I wanna ask. Has it made you more like Christ? Have you forsaken the things that we have in common? Do you you not see the 99% agreement that we all have? And do you begin to pick apart those secondary matters? I've got to disagree. This is log-and-spec theology, which Jesus condemns in Matthew 7. This is log-and-spec theology. Newton goes on to say, This shows in the battle, if the service of defending the faith is honorable, it is dangerous. You want to be a defender of the truth, but you have to understand it is dangerous to do so. What will it profit a man, Newton asks, if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble and tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights. You conquer your enemy, but your heart is as hard as a rock afterward. Congratulations, you won the battle. Congratulations. There is no success, another says, which is achieved at the price of your own integrity or someone else's hurt. There's no success in that. Newton's words, and again, I encourage you to go read this letter. This was a letter to another Christian, teaching them how to engage in controversy, and it is so, so well written. Newton's words carry some very deep undercurrents for us, very deep words of wisdom. Beloved, these are, I think, needful things. We've spent a lot of time just focusing on this, this word woe and how it cuts across, dividing people out. Who are our true friends and who are the true enemies of the gospel? If we don't get those things right, we're going to shoot the wrong people. He's saying much more than we realize. We, I think we find in, in these things a... A challenge to our affections. A challenge to our affections not only for the household of God, but for unbelievers as well. They should be a matter of deep reflection for us. So that's the first point. One pithy pronouncement. Now, let's move to point number two. Three notorious comparisons of woe. Now, from this deep, profound woe, Jude brings forth several cases for our consideration, and it's, so, it's, it's to help us identify the enemy the right way. These, were, these would be notorious men, notorious prototypes of woe in the Jewish mind. And before we touch on each case, look at verse 11. I want you to notice two things. First, notice the downward spiral Jude presents for our consideration. He says in verse 11, They walked, then they abandoned, and they perished. There's a downward spiral to the nature of this text. It speaks, walking speaks of a a man's general course of life. To abandon speaks of his heart being just hell-bent on particular paths of destruction. And to perish is a settled and final judgment and speaks of destruction. It's much like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of a sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. There's that downward spiral, that downward progression into deeper and deeper ungodliness. So notice the downward spiral. But secondly, notice in these cases, these men are not listed in chronological order. Jude does this to drive home a point. It's it's rhetoric on Jude's point. There's something instructive in Cain and in Balaam, but the climactic example is placed upon Korah. It's placed upon Korah. What draws these men together as an example is the shared nature of their sin, the way they influenced others, and the judgment they suffered. Those are three major things that are tied together. So we must ask, why such Woe! Why such a woe? The second half of verse eleven tells us: For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So notice first this notorious prototype of woe: Cain. The first notorious prototype of woe is Cain. Now Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. You know the story. And he was the first faithless man regarding the promise. The promise had been given to Adam and Eve. They passed that same gospel message on to their children. Abel believed. Cain rejected it. He's the first first faithless man regarding the promise. He's the first enemy of the life of faith. He killed his brother. He was the first skeptic. He was the first to persecute the faithful. He's the first to walk away from the church... And the true worship of God. And for our purposes in Jude, I think this is the reason Jude is bringing him forth. Cain highlights the fact that he was a man who rejected God's standards and set up his own. Cain was a man who rejected God's standards, God's word, God's commandments, and set up his own. Now Jude has weaved this constant thread throughout the letter as a mark of false teachers. False teachers deny the lordship of Christ, verse 4. False teachers reject authority, verse 8. And to show the judgment of such teachers, Jude points out that even angels who did not stay within their own position of authority were judged by God. So this thread of rejecting authority, rejecting the word of the Lord, is weaved throughout Jude's letter. So you know the story well from Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face falling? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now in this account, Cain was proven to be a sinner before the murder of his brother. Cain's first sin was not murder. Cain was proven to be a sinner in that he rejected God's word, God's commandments, God's God's standards. Cain had offered to God what God did not command. I want to talk about the regulative principle of worship and why that's so important. There's an example. God rejected Cain's offering. What Cain offered was in total rejection of what God had commanded It was not that Cain made an honest mistake in worship, as we are prone to do. He was controlled by evil principles. 1 John 3.12 states it plainly. If you have any uh, hesitation about the man, Cain was of the evil one, John says. Hebrews 11.4 states that it was a faithless act from a faithless man. Genesis four. 416 sadly says this, so Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. It's a telling line of the rejection of God and the first apostasy. But there's something a little more sinister here about Cain that highlights the false teacher's woe. One Jewish source aptly highlights what Cain was really saying was something like this there is no judgment. There's no judge, no future life, no reward for the righteous, no judgment for the wicked. Considering Cain's life in light of that recent event where God pronounced judgment upon the serpent and sin and gave the promise, I think we can see what sort of man Cain really was. He was a man who rejected God's authority. Scripture says false teachers begin here. The downward spiral of false teachers begins with a rejection of God's standards and a redefinition of sin. They walk in the way of Cain. Their way of life does not submit to the word. And Jude says, woe to them. Woe to them. The next prototype is Balaam. Balaam. The text says in Jude, false teachers have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Cain was a man who rejected God's standards and sinned. Balaam, led by greed, rejected God's standards and didn't just sin. But if you know the story, he taught others to sin and even tempted them to do so. 2 Peter 2.15 says this man loved gain from wrongdoing, loved money for teaching people how to sin against God. Balaam was ultimately remembered as an idolatrous man who loved money. He's a story of self-abandonment for the sake of money. And You can find his account in Numbers 22 through 24, and I'll leave you to read that. But in summary, Balak, the king of Moab, was desperate to defeat his enemies, the Israelites. He was threatened by them. He tried to hire Balaam, the seer, for money to curse Israel. However, to bring Israel down, Balaam taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What did he teach them to do? To eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. Revelation 2.14 Revelation 2.14 he showed Balak how to seduce the people of God with Midianite women and idol worship. Balaam knew what was forbidden for the Israelites. He knew the commandment of God. Yet he did it anyways, and he did it for money. He did it for money. Balaam forsook his perceived loyalty to the Lord for a monetary reward and his downfall is recorded in numbers 31:18. He dies by the sword at the hands of Israel in the battle against the Midianites. Balaam showed his ultimate allegiance was to the god of money. And the text says false teachers do the same. Don't be fooled. Just as Balaam cursed Israel, against his own conscience for filthy money, so these false teachers do the same. They abandon themselves, the text says, for the sake of gain. Now, some of your translations say they have rushed headlong. That word literally means to pour yourself out, to dedicate yourself to be totally committed, to use a cliche Christian term. They were sold out for Jesus, or so they seemed. What they were really interested in was money. Do you want to know what a guy like Andy Stanley, why he has no problems cutting corners in Scripture? Why he has no problems affirming gay Christianity? Or why Joel Osteen is the way he is? The answer is simple, beloved. They have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They love money from deceiving others. Now, that is what the word error means there. Look at the text. They have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Not a sincere mistake, but that word error there means intentionally twisting things for gain. Peter says, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Now further on this word error, it's very interesting here, and we won't get to this in verse 13. Error is connected to the idea in verse 13 that these men provide no fixed guidance. No fixed guidance. So error is connected in verse 13 when Jude calls these false teachers wondering stars wandering stars it's where we get our english word planet you ever looked at the night sky No stars there doesn't move what does a planet do it's all over the place unpredictable it's a wandering star now it was well known by mariners that planets provided no practical guidance for going from place to place they follow their own path They have their own orbit. They observe no particular rules. They never come up over the horizon on the same bearing. Planets in the night sky reverse course, something called retrograde motion. I wanted to be an astronaut one time. Planets misbehave. Planets misbehave. Mariners would use fixed stars in the sky to navigate the seas, Never planets. False prophets are the exact same, Jude says. They are wandering stars. Rather than being a fixed point of light in darkness to get you from A to B, following fixed rules, they will wander around with words and tell you whatever you want to hear to get your money. So basic, but we overlook it. They're salesmen for the gospel. They are preachers for hire. I would encourage you to go read Judges 17 and Micah and his sin. Woe to them, Jude says. Woe to these men. They have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Woe to them. Very quickly, an observation. Money can make a man do nearly anything. Money can make a man near, do nearly anything. Do not love it, beloved. Do not love money. Hold on loosely. Set not your heart upon it. It made Balaam and these false prophets throw off all restraint. And they plotted the destruction of others by tempting them to sin. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Same word, wondered, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Don't think the church is immune. Don't think the church is immune. False prophets can forsake God for gain, and so can entire congregations. Listen to 2 Timothy 4.3. A time is coming, Paul says. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Very same word. You can have all the right church polity. You can have it nailed down Just seamless. And you can appoint teachers that suit your itching ears. This was was, uh, Paul's way of telling Timothy, the church will by vote appoint men one day who will tell them what they want to hear. It's a sad reality, but it's true. Do not love money. Do not love money. And the climactic example here is in Korah. You can see it there. They walked in the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Cain sinned, Balaam sinned and enticed others to sin, but Korah plotted an outright rebellion, a revolt against God's man. According to Jewish tradition, Korah was the classic example of the antinomian heretic, a man who rejected the law, anti antinomas, against the law. But Jude highlights here his factious ways. He was a factious man. He divided up the people of God. Cain, by envy, was a man who rejected God's standards and sin, Balaam, led by greed, rejected God's standards and led others to sin. Korah, led by jealous ambition, rejected God's standards and called for the overthrow of God's faithful preachers. In a word, Korah and his kind are disturbers of the peace and order of the church. Period. Full stop. Although we don't type on typewriters anymore. His account is found in number 16, and this is where the chronology goes backwards a little bit. Korah, 250 well-known men assembled themselves together against Moses, opposing his authority and accusing him of unjustly ruling the people. Here are these eminent men. Moses, you've done wrong. Who are you to lead us and tell us we are sinners? Having received word from Mount Sinai that the entire congregation was holy, you can see that in Exodus 19.6, Korah challenges Moses and Aaron by saying this. You've gone too far, Moses, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is among them. I don't know why I'm talking in old English. That's how I hear it. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In modern parlance, who do you think you are, preacher man? You ain't no different than me. Who do you think you are standing up there telling me how to live my life? Korah thought Moses was a self-made man. And if anybody who's ever been called to the ministry to preach the gospel, they know that that is not the case. God will break you before he puts you here. But Korah thought Moses was a self-made man. His jealous ambition made him challenge Moses' God-given authority and seek to overthrow him. And it's a telling thing. That word rebellion, it's not the usual word for rebellion and sedition. It's the Greek word antilogia, against the word. Against the word. It carries the flavor of Hostility intentionally contradicting the revelation of God, antilogia. Korah's rebellion was a verbal challenge to Moses' authority given by God. Korah and his men were antinomians. They rejected God's law and God's man. And who else stands in the rebel's way than those with sound doctrine? That's why he sought to remove Moses. Do we see the connecting pattern here? We see the connecting pattern. I think it was in our text this morning in Deuteronomy 13. They seek to overthrow uh, God's man. Let's go look at that really quickly. Deuteronomy 13. I caught that as we were reading. I didn't have this in my notes. Deuteronomy 13. Going off a little bit on the on the trail here. Deuteronomy 13. If your brother or your son, if the if your brother, or the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of you embrace, or your friend, or who is uh, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 7, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him. Moses didn't yield to Korah. You shall not listen to him. Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him. And related to an earlier point, nor shall you conceal him. Public matter, public rebuke. Think about this. These men rejected God's word. They, they sought to set up another authority. Cain, Balaam, and Korah were rejectors of God's word. Jude's already mentioned the false teacher's heresy once before in verse 4 when he says they reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. In every way, I think we need to see, these men were antinomians. They rejected God's law just like Korah. They hate authority. And being full of jealous ambition, they reject the authority of the word. Jude says these sorts of men have already perished. Cain was exiled and Balaam died in battle. But Korah's fate was public and dramatic, and that's why it is the exemplar for us. Make no mistake about it, beloved. Jude is saying something very, very plain to us. Just as the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his men alive, so too is the fate of every false teacher. These men are hellbound with no alternative. And we must echo the words of Jude, Woe to them. Now, I'm going to close here with an observation, and we'll read verses 12 and 13. I want you to see here from this example of Korah that selfish ambition rejects authority and breeds factions. Selfish ambition rejects authority and breeds factions. Calvin states it this way. There was never any more deadly or abominable plague in the church of God than ambition. John records in his third letter this very thing. There was one who loved preeminence in the congregation and who did not acknowledge apostolic authority, and he is forever registered in Scripture as a troublemaker of the church. Selfish ambition rejects authority and breeds factions. We must heed the warnings of Scripture If anyone destroys God's temple, that is the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 3.17 Selfish ambition will set a person against their pastor, it will divide the church, and it will ultimately show a person to be a rejecter of God's word. An example of Christ is ours. Do nothing. Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's only the man who has quit crucifying himself daily that puts selfish ambition before him. We must crucify ourselves every day to avoid the things that smack of Korah's way. We must crucify ourselves. Well, finally, we'll wrap it up here And we'll pick up this theme the next time we're together. Jude brings forth five word pictures for us. And again, we're going to simply read these and we'll comment on them later. But Jude brings us these five word pictures or analogies or things from nature so that we don't miss the point. He takes us back, as I said earlier, to children's church. To color by numbers. To boil it down... These men promise much. False teachers promise a lot, but have absolutely nothing to offer. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude ends with the blackness of judgment, and this is where we will pick up in our next time together. Let's pray. The oh Lord, we have said and considered many things this morning. Things which are deeply deeply profound for our life in Christ as we contend for the truth. Would you help us, Lord, to remember these things, to consider who our true enemies are, that we may know how to fight with and beside our true friends. Forgive us where we don't. Forgive us where we see in ourselves echoes of these men. Purge us from these things. Cleanse our hearts and our minds. Help us to love you and to love your church. It's the only thing that will last on this earth. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that these things would be for your glory and for our good in Christ's name, amen.